the fourth section of right effort is very beautiful. It's nice to go out on a high note. You got your garden, all of the rough stuff has been done, the fencing, the turning of the soil, the pulling of weeds, the mulching, the seed catalog, the deliciously red seed catalog, the fantasies of winter have come. You've got the seeds, you've planted them all, and everything is coming up nicely. Wholesome mental states that have arisen. So that's the beginning of this fourth section. Regarding wholesome mental states that have arisen. What is your duty towards these? To maintain them, not let them fade. To deepen and develop them. So this is the part where you're sustaining and fertilizing and looking for techniques to get more intensity. So intensity and duration should be recurring. And the wholesome mental states, there is actually lists of wholesome mental states in what's called the Abhidhamma and unwholesome mental states Kusala dhammas and akusala dhammas. Kusala means skillful. Yeah, so these are skillful mental states which are not to be feared, not to be let go of, not to be watched disappear. They are to be actually maintained. Now, this is the thing about this detachment business and not getting attached to whatever's happening, etc. This is not, does not apply to this. You shouldn't worry about whether you're attached to it or not. Because we're starting, if you remember, starting on the one side of the river with this raft, and we have to get to the other side of the river with this raft. And on the other side of the river, it is no longer necessary to cling to the raft. The raft can be set down on the banks of the high side of the river because there's no danger anymore. And the raft has done its duty. But you can't let go of the raft before you've used it to cross over. You are attached, in other words. The whole problem is you're attached. And to tell somebody not to be attached to their attachments is just crazy. Just be detached from, don't, don't get attached to any wholesome mental states that may arise. Don't get attached. For instance, to such things as samadhi or jhana or things like this. These are all wholesome mental states. The constituents of Samadhi, the jhana factors, are beautiful. The first five jhana factors are applied and sustained attention. Good. Joy, the emotion is joy. The sense in the body is pleasure. And the mind is unified and not scattered. 
These are all beautiful. And I've heard people say, no, don't get attached. You get something nice like that. Don't, don't get attached. What are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to do this or not? <laughs> the common sense response to that is correct. Obviously, you have to invest in this, and you have to maintain it and sustain it. Otherwise, there's no point in even mentioning it. Why is it in the Eightfold Path? Why does the path lead to this last factor, right concentration? There's no expectation that you will be suddenly somehow detached from exquisite pleasures. The unification of the mind, the ability to be free of the harassments the psychic irritants of the five hindrances is a beautiful experience. And guess what? You're going to like it. And you're going to be attached to it. But not to worry. There's a natural resultant of these wholesome factors. And they unbind your grasping nature. They allow that grasping to fall away and you are no longer attached and the roots of the hindrances have been severed and so they don't arise anymore but the wholesome mental factors arise and are at that point are you supposed to be unconcerned with them being detached does that mean that you no longer cultivate them or maintain them or indulge in them? No. It means that that is where you live. When the negative emotional states have subsided and the roots have been removed, they no longer arise, and so you're left in this space of freedom. And even the fully enlightened person, the Arahant, and indeed the Buddha, still actually cultivates these states of samadhi, of deep concentration. The Buddha talks specifically about going after his enlightenment, after he's the Buddha. He still goes into retreat and tells Ananda, his attendant, if people ask what the Buddha is doing in retreat, you say he's watching his breath. He's doing breath meditation. Why does he have to do that? Is he not enlightened? No, he's enlightened. Why do the Arahants go? Not only, they go in and kind of do legendary deep retreats. Sariputta and Moggallana will go and immerse themselves for a week without lying down. They'll go into deep samadhi for a week, up to seven days. And some of the young monks want to do that too. You can't wait to go out there and go into jhana for a week, eh? But there's a little story. One of the attendants of the Buddha had heard that Moggallana and some of the Arhants go off and spend a week in utter bliss in Samadhi. And they want to go and do that. The Buddha says, you've got to stay with the community for a while. You know, you've got to develop your practice and everything. No, I really want to do it. But out of politeness, he waits. And then Two weeks later, he asks again, I want to go and do that. I want to go and do that. Finally, the Buddha says, okay, go and do it. Anyway, he's back in a couple of days. 
just lonely, scattered, sad, frustrated, lustful, agitated, no peace. <laughs> so the Buddha then tells him a story. He says, you know, the, the elephants love water. They love to immerse themselves in water. Elephants can swim very well, you know. They love, the big bull elephants love to go into these lotus ponds and they blow water into the air like fountains and they pluck up these lotus and eat them. They're very delicate, lovely things and they roll around in the water. They have a great time in the water. And there's a rabbit watching on the bank thinking, that looks like fun. They are just having such a good time. I'm going in. The rabbit jumps in, but of course the rabbit can't swim. <laughs> he just barely makes it back to the shore. He's soaking wet. <laughs> Skinny little wet rabbit. He didn't have fun at all in the pond. So the Buddha says, see, the bull elephants are Mogalana and Sariputta, and you, my friend, are the rabbit. <laughs> you can't do it yet. But when you cultivate the practice, then you will be able to swim. You will be able to frolic in the well-being of unification of mind, full attention, and the joy that arises when you can focus your mind, the ease that comes with that. So these are, you know, sometimes you get a very grim description of Buddhism is just like ignoring everything and not affected by the world around them and so forth. But when you read more deeply, you understand it's different than that. They have, they're exquisitely sensitive to the situation around them, and they're also experiencing profoundly pleasant and refined emotional being. And this is happening to them at the higher stages, the more advanced stages, this is a kind of continuous state of being. It appears from the Buddha's schedule that he only sleeps about two hours a night. He sleeps, he seems to lie down and sleep about two hours between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. They didn't have any clocks at that time, but that's sort of the equivalent. And at four, he gets up, sits up, and he does what's called Maha Karuna. Samadhi, another great compassion. And he goes into this deep samadhi and then directs his mind to compassion and sweeps around with the psychic capacity, he sweeps out in the world to see beings. And he sees beings who are ready to hear Dhamma, whose mind is ready and would respond to hearing Dhamma. And then he goes, as dawn approaches, he goes on alms round to certain villages, and then he arranges to have people that he sees already encounter him, and then they have an exchange of dhamma. And sometimes in these encounters, the person attains enlightenment during that encounter. The Buddha is actually very interested in the welfare of beings. He has great compassion, so he's now, great compassion is also an incredibly enjoyable state. By the way, so you should distinguish compassion, enlightened compassion has no grief in it. Quite often we 
think of compassion as grieving for the world or having a good heart and being very empathic to others' suffering and sort of suffering along with them or grieving along with them. But actually, that's not what compassion is. Compassion is a very pleasurable experience. It's just love is what it is. And particularly for those who are distressed, suffering. It's love directed for those who are suffering. It's not sympathetic grief. It's extremely pleasant and yet full of sensitivity to what it feels like to suffer. You know what it feels like. But you don't induce a sense of suffering while knowing that others suffer. In a way, this is a very positive, robust, beautiful emotional state and sensitive to the world. And then the Buddha is dwelling frequently in meditation. But he's also saying, and the other arahants are saying, that there is an obligation to the duties of the Sangha. And when it's required, the Sangha requires your presence, then you must interrupt your deep meditations and communicate and participate. And you're willing to do that because it's not something you grudgingly do. You realize that even the arahant has gratitude for having encountered these things. They never run out of gratitude for having heard liberating teachings because they're not going to fall into suffering anymore. And you will just never get over the feeling of appreciation for something like that. It's like having an illness for a long time and then somebody comes up with a medicine that cures it, you know. You want to go and hug that guy, <laughs> whoever invented insulin or <laughs> this is an amazing effect. You know, if somebody can cure your ailment, you have gratitude, immense gratitude. You never get over that. So this positive quality, I don't think it's gone into enough when talking about Buddhism. It all seems to be about this detachment. There's a lot of talk, especially in the northern schools, the Mahayana schools, about emptiness. It's all about emptiness, emptiness this and emptiness. <laughs> it sounds rather nothing, doesn't it? It doesn't sound positive, like who wants to dwell in emptiness? But when you get familiar with the suttas and the way the Buddha talks, you see that he's a very sensitive, appreciative. He understands humans. He understands how to talk to them. He understands the difficulties they go through, their confusions. He's warm-hearted towards them. And he also can abide. When he's not engaged like that, he's abiding in a great sense of continuous well-being and bliss. And he's not the only one. It's many of his students, his disciples, are also achieving this. So we should not be confused by the language of so-called detachment. Detachment doesn't mean that you are unfeeling in any way. What it really means is you've uprooted the negative roots, that those roots which produce the psychic irritants, the, the anger and the greed and the agitation and the 
despair and the heaviness and the whirling doubts, the roots of those have been removed and are no longer there, and that is detachment. The positive mental states are still there and will always be there as long as there is any consciousness. And they're the beautiful results of the practice. And right effort tells you that's what you're working towards and that you want to bring them into existence, you know, even for a moment. You want to do this, you want to bring them into existence. And, you know, you you think, well, I could probably raise some sort of focus and joy and ease for a minute. Because, by the way, a minute is not just something that just is gone. The Buddha often talks about the effect of even a finger snap worth of positive feelings, a finger snap worth of loving kindness, has immense results immense positive results. In the same way that a single moment of rage or violence can have immense negative results. It can echo for a lifetime, you know. So we're extremely careful not to indulge in these negative states because at a certain intensity, even for a very brief time, they have a whole domino effect in the future. And in the opposite way, don't underestimate the power of having a few seconds of focus and joy and good-heartedness. Any of these things, generosity, kindness, clarity, the positive mental states, the positive emotional states, even for a few moments, A glimpse like that of true well-being and happiness, can you can carry that for the rest of your life. It can be always there. It's sometimes very difficult to get back to, but it's something you saw. And that you, hopefully, it will always pull you back as well and has immense positive results in all kinds of ways. Quite often outside, I'm talking in the emotional dimension of your life, the well-being dimension, But the Buddha says that, you know, a little tiny bit of loving-kindness actually has material repercussions as well. It alters your relationship to the reality around you, the material reality, and your relationship with people as well and beings. In a way, we don't have this kind of explanatory structure in sort of the modern West and modern science, but maybe we're coming close to it with what's called entanglement, quantum entanglement. This is like what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. (laughs) He's getting close to karma there. In a weird way, which shouldn't happen according to physics, but it does because they observe it. Two kind of entities, little particles, can be connected over vast distances and their behavior is synchronized somehow, and they shouldn't be. There's no explanation how they could possibly be in communication. This begins to sound a little more like the Buddhist universe, where 
the ramifications and effects of mental states and positive emotional states cause spooky action at a distance, <laughs> cause things to rearrange themselves, <laughs> strange things. These are beautiful kind of curious things. And just like in physics, no matter how many times I read about quantum entanglement, I still don't understand it, but I can explain it very well. <laughs> and most physicists, well, basically the end, in physics, they say nobody understands quantum physics. <laughs> But you can predict a lot of things with it. And so how all this stuff works, we'll never know. The Buddha had the same word for it. It's incalculable. It's beyond the capacity to think it through. But he just says, just enjoy the goodness and the positive qualities that arise with this and just trust that it also has positive, desirable results. You can't figure it out at all of the levels. It's beyond calculation, but there will be positive results. And there are positive results instantly as well. That the very nature of the enjoyment that you get, the pleasure that you get from a mind that is not harassed and not irritated and burdened and distorted is instant karma. It's instant results. I'm sure you've heard this little thing, instant karma, somewhere along the line. And it sounds like pop stuff, you know. I think there was a song by the Beatles or John Lennon, perhaps, instant karma. Actually, in the text, that's Abhidhamma. <laughs> yeah, there is such thing as instant karma. The moment you, it, the karma is the action and you will get the result the next moment, instant results. And so that in the generation of positive mental states and the determination to maintain them, you also get instantly the pleasure and the good feeling that is associated with that. And then you will have good results that is separated in time from that experience as well. So it's like gardening too. It's just good exercise and you get to to create and you enjoy the gardening and then you get to eat the stuff that you enjoyed creating and planting and so forth. You get to enjoy the fruits and some of them's going to, but you're going to put some of it in storage. You're going to pickle some of it and it'll be next winter that you get to enjoy this as well. So this is multiple layers of benefits from this. There's nothing... There's no downside to this. The cultivation of these positive mental states, which is being advocated in right effort, and you're going to employ this lovely thing called right mindfulness because you can't do it without mindfulness. If your attention is weak and scattered, you can't pull this off. And so the Buddha does give you exercises to strengthen your mindfulness. And he says, keep doing it for even a few minutes, a few seconds even, strengthen it, strengthen it, become aware, become aware. Become aware of what? And then he tells you what? Become aware of the five hindrances, become aware of them. Become aware of positive mental states. Now, identify them, spot them early, and then apply effort to remove these negative ones and apply effort to sustain those other ones. Don't just take them for granted. 
Don't think they just arrived from the environment. In all cases, you are producing them. It doesn't come from outside of you. Even when, if you're in a room with somebody who you just love and it's a great friend and you go get a hug and so forth and you feel that your friend did that to you. Oh, I feel so good with my friend. Actually, you did that. It can't come from your friend. It comes from you. There was conditions where you're favorable for you producing this sense of goodwill and relaxed safety. That's what friendliness is, kind of a form of feeling safe. This is, you did that. And you can do that, you can learn to do that more often. And you can learn to do it in circumstances where your friend isn't there. You can feel friendliness and the embrace of safety and ease without needing any of these external structures. So, the Buddha is just advocating this. It's very unusual to hear this kind of talk, I think, in general in the world. Most people think that human existence is just a mixed bag, and it's also, you can't expect it to be all good. And that's something that people arrive at. But the Buddha is saying, I think you've sold yourself short. Actually, you should spend a lot of time cultivating these good things because you can. It's amazing how much time you can spend dwelling in them, how you can bring them into your life and sustain and deepen them. Now, you need some imagination and you need some memory and you need some strong attention to the present in order to bring them into existence. So you've got to find some way to bring them up. And this is where creativity comes in. You have to, in order to get a sense of well-wishing and loving-kindness for others, you need to find imagery and situations in your life that have softened your heart. And you need to search in there. You can search in your memory, and you can create with your imagination until you get this feeling. And when you get it, your next job is to keep it. So your first job is to get it, and that's the third category of right effort, which we talked about last night, to bring wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen into existence. And then... Once they're in existence, wholesome mental states which have arisen then should be sustained, deepened, and developed. So the two parts of this. It's very important, though, that you remember how you did that. When you manage to bring good, strong, right emotional states into existence, it's worth spending some time just thinking about, like, how did I do that? What were those images? What were those memories? What were the words? Sometimes it'll occur because you're listening to somebody. It's inspiring you and bringing you into that space so the voice of another can help. Sometimes it'll be that. Sometimes it'll be just to be amongst people who are uplifting. Sometimes it'll just be the sight of somebody doing an act of generosity. It can be just very moving to see somebody forgiving somebody or 
helping somebody. It's just moving. And just remember that. that those are important things to remember. That's your map of how to get there. Remember how to get there. Spend some time writing it down and getting the cues and the keys to how to get there. And then your next job is to do it regularly and often, and then how to stay there. You can also watch what pulls you out of it, what pulls you into negative things, and learn and start strategizing about how to reduce that type of stimulus that pull you out of those positive mental states. And that has to do with what you're seeing in the world, and you're seeing something the opposite of forgiveness, the opposite of generosity, of kindness. You're seeing anger and hate and so forth. It's impacting you in a negative way and pulling you out of these mental states. So you're going to have to not dwell on the negative, not dwell on the fault, not to extract the sign of the fault from the situation, not to dwell on that, let it go. Restrain your consciousness of that. That is not, by the way, irresponsible or not facing reality or anything like that. It has to do with the fact that throughout the universe, all of those kind of things are happening all the time. Terrible pain is caused. Ignorance is functioning and causing distress and cruelty is happening all the time. It would be very, very unwise to end up entangled in that all the time. It's going on whether you regard it or not. And you have some choices to make about how you feel in this universe. So you're going to have to, if that pulls you out of those positive mental states, you're going to have to set those things aside and cultivate these positive mental states until actually you will not be pulled out of those positive conditions by whatever is happening. So these are the uh, words of encouragement that you find under right effort. It's one of the most inspiring and beautiful path factors and is underappreciated and not talked about enough, but it's just full of so many clear instructions about how to navigate in the inner world and in the outer world. And you generally can spend your whole life in ordinary company and never really hear that. But since you've gone to a right effort retreat, you have finally heard it. And since we're recording this, you can hear it again and again and again for the sake of remembering. And the voice of another. So sometime at two o'clock in the morning when you're not doing so well, I'll talk you out of it. At least I'll put you to sleep. Okay, so our journey... We have arrived at the end of the line of right effort, and I'll leave that for you tonight.